Welcome, my name is Kareem Kanji and this is episode 47. Today's episode is being recorded on October the 4th during the Blue Jays Orioles wildcard game and you will hear us cheer during a Bautista home run in the second inning. On with the show. Uh, today's episode features a guest born in Red Deer, Alberta, raised in Oshawa, Ontario. It is Desmond Cole. He's an award-winning journalist and activist, a former staff writer, a Torontoist. His work has also appeared in the Walrus, Toronto Life, Vice, Now Magazine, and he primarily focuses on social justice, equity, immigration, systemic racism, and poverty. Desmond is also a radio host with News Talk 1010 and a regular contributor with the Toronto Star. He was also a co-host on the Canadian Politics Podcast, Canada Land Commons. Desmond and his news team at Torontoist won a National Magazine Award Silver Medal for their 2013 coverage of Toronto City Hall and a Canadian Online Publishing Award Gold Medal for the 2014 City Hall coverage. He's a former community animator with CSI. He's a powerful speaker and he's addressed audiences across the city at Ryerson School of Journalism, Centennial College and George Brown College. Uh, he also covered the Black Lives Matter historic event at Police Services Headquarters in Toronto. He has an upcoming book hopefully being published in 2017. This has to be one of my top three conversations. I hope you enjoy. Live from Pacific Junction Hotel, Girth Radio in session. Sounding okay? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I, I'm sure this is nothing like what you had at Canada Land Boof. Commons. You want to see the little uh, closet phone booth studio that we were in? But over you there, guys man? sounded so great. I'm glad. I'm, I mean, you guys still like. I know you're not on the uh, on the show anymore. No, no. But it, it's still Jesse and, and everyone else. You know, sounds like it's it's done very professionally. Yeah, we and and we had fun. Yeah, uh, that was the yeah that was the best part. That is awesome. Um, there. So, as you will learn, um, I am not a professional at this. Um, so, uh, this is going to be all over the place. No problem. And you didn't help me by posting that video on YouTube <laughs> and writing that article. That, that like, sucked me in. And, I, you know, next thing I knew, I, I look up uh, from my computer and it's, you know, one thirty, almost 2 o'clock in the morning. And, you know, I swore to myself because my son had to get to cricket practice at 7.30 the next morning. And what I thought was going to be a nice long sleep ended up being just a few hours. I mean, welcome to my world. I'm sure. I, I got trolled by Andrew Coyne on Twitter today. I mean, it, it, every day is a, a new adventure. It, <laughs> I, I don't know where you find the time to do anything outside of of being on Twitter. It's like that's your... Your your playground. It definitely, you know, is that's that's your that's that's your workspace. But I know you're doing you're doing tons of stuff. So, you know, in in no particular order, um, let's let's start with with this question: Black Lives Matter in Canada. Yeah. Um, what? Obviously, um, by me seeing your video and, and, and reading a few of your articles that you've recently written, um, there is there is a problem north of the 49th it's not isolated uh in the states but what's the history of of black lives matter in canada um as far as my documentation goes it, the black lives matter toronto uh organization was the first one to kind of really formally pop up in canada and that happened almost exactly 2 years ago now we're getting close to 
the two-year anniversary of their first uh, action. And, you know, I remember this really well because I was in Ferguson, Missouri at the time. So two, okay. sum- two summers ago. That's two years ago already, Ferguson. Really, yeah, that's how time mo- uh, moves. Jeez. But um, I was in Ferguson. That summer, Mike Brown had been killed by Darren Wilson, the police officer. Yeah. And uh, in, uh, I believe it was late November or so, um, a grand jury who was looking into the whole thing decided they were not going to lay any charges against Darren Wilson for this killing. Uh-huh. So they made their decision not to lay any charges on a Monday night. They released their decision on a Monday night. And on the Tuesday morning, I got on a plane and I went to Ferguson. And um, all that week, there were huge demonstrations going on all around the world, actually, in support and in solidarity with Mike Brown and uh, his family and all of the people of Ferguson. So I was there covering all of this for Walrus Magazine. Okay. And I remember going home, I think it was on the Wednesday, and going to my hotel room and watching TV and seeing these protests happening everywhere across the world, including Toronto. And the Black Lives Matter uh, uh, movement in Toronto kind of began that week with an action here in Toronto in solidarity with uh, Ferguson that I think 3,000 people attended. It was a really big deal. And since that time, you know, there's a now um, Black Lives Matter groups in Ottawa, in Vancouver, in Halifax. But I think what's really important for people to remember is that, you know, um, this is not like, say, what used to happen in the States in the 60s or even much earlier with groups like the NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored Peoples. It's not like that. It's not formal chapters. Black Lives Matter is a movement. It's an idea. So while there may be different groups in different cities, there's a lot of loose association rather than people sharing money, sharing all their resources, having a common kind of manifesto that they all adhere to. The goal is definitely to fight back against state violence and particularly police brutality, but it's a movement. It's not an organization. Okay. Interesting. Let's talk about, uh, you know, very recently, um, last week, you, you went to a ball game. Or on your way to do? Was it on your way to a baseball game? I was on my way to a ball game. Yeah. What happened? What did you see? I was riding on the streetcar going south on Dundas, or sorry, south on Spadina, just north of Dundas. So going through Chinatown. Yeah. And I look out the window. I I always kind of gaze out the window, just absent-mindedly when I'm riding transit, and I saw a man, a black man, who was quite young, younger than me. And he's standing with his back up against the window of a storefront, and he has his hands up in the air as if he's surrendering. Yeah. And he's surrounded by police. Yeah. And there are police cars hopped up on the curb and stuff like that. And it looked like a really scary situation. Yeah. So obviously I got off the streetcar and went exactly headed towards it to find out what was going on. Yeah. But honestly, I was I – was, no joking aside – I was terrified for this guy yeah. and for his safety. And I just wanted to find out what was going on. Yeah, yeah. So I, I approached. I tried to listen to what these police officers were saying to this young man. And what I could see was that they were repeatedly questioning him about his identity. Yeah. About his middle name, about his street address. And they kept kind of going back and forth with it, uh, repeatedly asking him the same questions uh, as if they didn't really believe the answers that he was giving them. Yeah. And they kept asking him to confirm and confirm, but that doesn't sound like this and say it again. And this guy was terrified. You could tell he was very, very scared. Uh-huh. So I observed this. I didn't say anything. I noticed then after that, that the officer who was closest to this guy, uh, There was a bag close to him, and this bag ended up being the bag belonging to the young man. The officer started going through his bag, just digging through it, looking for whatever he was looking for. And um, then, without really any warning at all, he approached this young man, and he began patting down all around his pockets and his crotch area. Yeah. And then he physically stuck his hands inside this young man's pockets. This was the point at which I started getting really upset. Yeah. 
because I didn't understand why this was happening, and presumably neither did this young man. So I simply called out to him and I said, hey, if you don't want this officer to search you, let him know that you don't want him to search you because you have the right to do that. And the second that I said that, yeah. all the police officer's attention turned from him to me. Yeah. At that point, I switched on my video camera and you saw the video which yeah. followed, which was six minutes of police officers harassing me, yeah. telling me I'm ignorant, yeah. that I don't know the law. Uh, the police officer who had been conducting the search walked over to me in the video and very obviously tried to grab the camera out yeah. of my hand. Yeah. Um, eventually, they decided that they were going to let this guy go, and they said that they were driving him home. I spoke to him for half a second, and I said, are you okay? And he said, yes. Yeah. And he said, they're going to take me home. Thank you. Okay. And, you know, the police officers tried to give me an explanation after that about why they were searching his bag why they were searching his body, but their explanation really did not make any sense. And the whole reason why I was concerned in the first place is because I know how much scrutiny our police here in Toronto put on black people for no reason. Yeah. And I think that this was another case of that. You, I, I was shocked. My, my sister's married to an African-American, um, and they, she's he has now been here in Toronto for... I want to say a couple of years now, maybe more. Um, and he shocked to me, just shocked that he's been stopped multiple times. He drives a nice BMW, um, stopped multiple times for no reason at all. And I go, like, here? And he goes, yeah. And my sister would tell me, walking downtown, um, they see people like as, as if it's Moses parting the Red Sea, you know, as he's walking, as he's walking. Um, and they've tested it. You know, my sister will walk. No, no one moves, you know, and, and with a baby. Um, he walks down and it's like, you know, he's got some magnetic thing that people just are, you know, move away. And, and I said, I, I was shocked that this happens here. And the reason I'm shocked is because I don't experience it. Well, these stereotypes about black people don't have any borders. Yeah. Um, anti-black racism is a real thing everywhere. And so it doesn't matter... If you're in Canada or in France or in Australia or, I mean, you can be where my parents are from in Sierra Leone, which is a British colony, by the way. Mm -hmm. And this is the part of the reason why these stereotypes are everywhere, because colonization went all over the world. The subjugation of black people was a global phenomenon. Yeah. So it's just ignorant to believe that we would somehow be immune from it here in Canada where we also had a slave trade happen. And people don't know that either. Um, just back to my story really quickly, yeah, though, yeah, because yeah. I, I didn't really tell the story quite well. The young man who I was witnessing that day, I would find out, he called the police for help himself. He called that's right, that's 911. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so he called 911 and he ended up being searched and having his bag searched and having his name run through a computer as if he was a criminal. Yeah. And I ended up having these guys try to take my phone away from me yeah. as if I was being criminal for trying to film them in public, which of course is my right and everyone's right to do in public. Sure, as sure. long as they're not obstructing the police. So you know, the way that this guy was treated, and I hear so many ridiculous stories about why it made sense to treat him this way. And I just ask myself, uh, if he had been a 12-year-old white girl who had called the police, and let's say, because they said that they thought this man had mental health issues and he kind of made up the story. So let's say a 12-year-old white girl makes up a story that she got stabbed and calls 911, and the police are with her on the street. And somebody witnesses a police officer grabbing around her crotch area and reaching his hands into her pockets. What do you think people would say? What do you think they would say? They'd be up in arms. Why? Well, they should be. Why would they be up in arms? Because what is different about that situation? Oh. The police said they did it to protect their safety. A 12-year-old girl can mess you up with a knife. But, you see, in that circumstance, the focus would be on the presumption of that girl's innocence. Yeah. Black people do not have the presumption of innocence in Toronto, which is why the police do whatever they want to us, and a huge amount of the public just says, well, what were they doing? Every conversation about anti-black racism always ends up being, yes, but what were the black people doing? How were the black people behaving? Were they being polite? Were they compliant? How were they, were they meek? Yeah. How were they dressed? What did they say? 
every time a black person is involved in something like this, and I saw this in the reactions to my video, all the reactions to my video were not about what I witnessed. They were about whether or not I was being rude to the police officers. I mean, no one says it's rude to take my phone. Yeah. Which is, should be criminal, really. Yeah. No one says it's rude to put your hands on a man's crotch when he's not doing anything wrong. No, they focus on my behavior. Yeah. All conversations about anti-black racism in this white supremacist society of ours end up focusing on And you're not just saying the white supremacist society. Like, no. You, you, like, you believe this. When I say white supremacy, I know what people think. Because yeah. they have been trained to think that white supremacy is the Ku Klux Klan and Nazi Germany. Yeah. And that that's what... But the underlying idea behind the KKK yeah. and Nazi Germany is that white people are superior, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, well, I just read a, a, a write-up of a poll saying that something like 70% of Canadians think that so-called minorities need to integrate better when they come to Canada. Who are these minorities? What do they look like? Yeah. What countries are they coming from? What languages do they speak? And what culture are they supposed to be trying to assimilate and integrate into? Yeah. Of course, Canada functions on a, uh, an assumption of white supremacy. British people came here, and this is not their land. Yeah. And they usurped this land from the indigenous peoples who were here before them and installed all their own laws and traditions and values. The British didn't assimilate when they came here to indigenous people's values. They have their own values. And those values run this country now. Those values are colonialism, white supremacy, uh, you know, using the land the way that the people who came here feel like using the land and in many cases destroying it. And this is the situation that we have in Canada today. I do call that white supremacy. There's no other, there's no other term for it. And people might think that that language is too strong. Yeah. Um, but Canada is a racist society. Canada does not view all races equally. If it did, the indigenous people of this country would not be living in the conditions that they were, and nor would they be fighting the government for their own land, for their own resources, and for their own future. Of course, we live in a white supremacist society. That and I, th for for me personally, that's one thing that is is shameful. Uh, is is how, when I say we, I, I, it's, I'm talking about the you know we as Canada mm -hmm. have treated the indigenous communities, um, you know, shipping them away from their homelands. Um, it shocks me to to learn that. Simple things like uh, clean running water, um, are, 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 is a scarcity in, in some of these places. In many of these places, um, you know, we we joke about you know not having a Wi-Fi connection when in you know a, a country where studies show that you know we're the most one of the most livable countries, and you know all, you know all these studies that the UN and all these other places will come out with, um, where we we have places that are in air quotes third world like we have parts of this country where all of the wealth that we enjoy is simply not reaching and it's ironic because wealth gets for example mined out of those countries so in a place like Attawapiskat you have a huge diamond mine that's right next to the community and that community lives in poverty and that community experiences a great amount of suicide. Um, and yeah. young people don't feel like they have a future. But there is a huge amount of wealth right next door to them. And so to tie this into something like Black Lives Matter, um, for me as a black person and as a Canadian born in this country on stolen indigenous lands, I can't actually talk about liberation for myself yeah. and for other black people unless I first acknowledge that I am part of the system that took all of this stuff away from indigenous peoples. And that um, if we want to talk about reconciliation, that's not just a word. Um, it's not just a nice idea. We actually do have to decolonize this land that we're living on mm -hmm. and decolonize our practices as human beings if we all want to get free. Because if I want to fight for my freedom, but I'm not willing to recognize the original theft of this country from indigenous peoples, that's not going to work for me as a black person. We yeah. have to be in solidarity. One of the first times I, I heard you, I think you did a report with, with, um, with Jesse Brown where you, you were speaking with... Uh, an indigenous person who was at the Black Lives Matter 
um, at the police station. Uh, t- tell me about that conversation and, 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 and why and why he was there. Boy, oh boy. I will never forget this conversation, Kareem. Now, this was a guy named Gary Wasikisik. And um, Gary is an indigenous man. And he had been at that historic Black Lives Matter protest that happened outside of police headquarters downtown and lasted for 15 days, day and night, in horrible weather and rain yeah, and freezing brutal. rain and really um, unseasonably, cold, unseasonably cold temperatures for that time of the year. Gary was there every day. And not only was he there every day, he would stand on top of uh, this... Uh, a little uh, kind of monument that was near the police headquarters with two flags at, representing First Nations, and he would just hold them up there to draw attention to the protest as people would drive by and walk by. And when I interviewed him and I said, why are you doing this? He said, who knows better about police brutality in this country than the indigenous peoples do? And I'm up here because Andrew Loku, who's a 45-year-old man who was killed by the Toronto police yes. last summer. Andrew Loku lost his life. And, he, and Gary said to me, Andrew had a life. He had a family. And that life was taken from him by the police. And so I'm here to honor him. I'll never forget it. And, and the solidarity between Indigenous peoples and the Black Lives Matter crew during that demonstration was phenomenal. When I, when I heard that, that, that report that you did, what shocked me was how come I hadn't heard of this. I I, I was I I was like th- this was happening. This actually happened. Like I I had I, I had no clue that this was going on. Like was it covered? Now, I I don't I I'll admit to you I, I don't I don't read the newspapers. Um, you know my news, uh, good or bad, comes from Twitter and what's trending on Facebook. Um, did the media cover this? Was was this was this a front page item for fifteen days? No, uh, it was barely a front page item at all. Um, there was one instance where all the media were there, and that was during the very first night of demonstration when the police came out. Yeah, and people say that the police clashed with protesters, and I'm using air quotes for people who can't see me in the studio here. Yeah. Uh, how do you clash with protesters when you're the ones with all the weapons, the batons, the shields, the guns? Yeah. They went out there and they attacked the protesters so that they could dismantle their tents and douse out the fire that the protesters had had there in an attempt to try and basically scare people away and tell them go home. But that action of police brutality, which involved a lot of people getting hurt and scared, just reinforced people's ideas that they wanted to be there. Now, what's amazing is that uh, uh, news agencies like CP24 yeah. captured that beating by police live on the air, and actually the police came out two times that night and and attacked people. And what's amazing is there was no commentary about that afterwards. It was like just okay, here's some action, here's some controversy and some tension, and then whatever. And I would talk to my colleagues in the media. And what I had feared was going on was, in fact, the case, which was that people in newsrooms were saying, okay, yeah, but there's nothing really going on. So they wanted to be there to see black people getting beat up. But uh, other than that, there was nothing interesting to them going on. At Occupy, which lasted, excuse me, far longer. Yeah. The media were there every day. Yeah. The media never left there. And they were talking about it. And they were talking to people in the neighborhood about it. And it was this big thing. Um, but a group of black people uh, are resisting in a way that I think is pretty unprecedented on police property. Yeah. No interest. Huh. But, you know, a couple weeks later, somebody uncovered a tweet that a Black Lives Matter organizer had made months before. Oh, and suddenly, man. And suddenly then, oh, yes, now we've got them. Now we've got them looking awkward and angry and violent. So now let's talk about Black Lives Matter. That's how the Canadian media works. So when I talk about racism in this country, yeah. I'm not just trying to say that to get people upset. The media in our country is white. Uh, the last stat that I saw about print columnists, so people who write opinion in this country, I'm now fortunate to be one of them. Yeah. 97% of print columnists in Canada are white. 
That's not, again, just a a statistic. These are not neutral ideas. Those folks carry their own biases, their own prejudices, and in many cases are not really sympathetic to something like Black Lives Matter. They have more questions and skepticism than they do curiosity. And that colors the way, pardon the pun, that people cover these kinds of events. So, yeah, the media was not really as interested in that very historic protest as they should have been. A protest which, by the way, involved things like restoring Afrofest, the largest festival for black people in, uh, free festival for black people in North America. Uh, That protest fought for Afrofest to be restored from one day to two, and they were successful. That protest fought for... um, uh, pieces of the SIU report on Andrew Loku to be released and were successful. That report called for the province to do something about systemic racism, and now we have an anti-racism directorate, so it was successful in that light. I mean, I don't know what people want this group to do that they're not doing. They've been yeah. successful in mobilizing for social change and and the political front as well. But our media, they're sleeping on them. What? Let's let's go back. Um, and you mentioned Andrew Loku. Um, you know, he was he was a gentleman that that was shot by police in his home in his in his apartment building in the hallway of his apartment in the building. hallway of his apartment building, and coincidence or not, the the videotape that's always on uh, just happened not to be uh, during a very important two three minute yeah p- period of time yeah um what what ha- what what's happened since that that we know of. Uh, what repercussions have, uh, have, have happened? So uh, as far as the state is concerned, the case of Andrew Loku is over. We have something called the Special Investigations Unit, and they investigate the police. They are supposed to be independent of the police, but the Special Investigations Unit is made up almost entirely of former police officers. Because we have this idea in Canada huh. that the only people who can thoroughly investigate a police officer is a former police officer. Yeah. Uh, so that's suspect. Uh, but then you just look at their record and the SIU clears 96 or 97 percent of all the cases that they all the officers that they investigate. So their their clearance rate is is such that it's almost impossible to get charges brought. I'm talking about charges. I'm not talking about because the SIU is not a court. The SIU doesn't say, officer, guilty. Officer's going to get this kind of sentence. All they do is say, we think you should bring charges just to go to court. 97% of the time, that does not even happen. happen. And so this is what we call oversight in the province of Ontario. And this is what people were protesting for 15 days outside of the police station, is that lack of oversight. So in the case of the state... Uh, this is over. There are not going to be any charges. And um, it's just another sad incident that, that in their eyes that, you know, unfortunate. But, hey, officers acted appropriately. And uh, let's hope it never happens again, which it already has since that time. But what I like to draw people's attention to when it comes to Andrew Loku, for all the people who want to say, well, you know, he was acting funny. He was acting aggressive. He had a hammer in his hand. Uh, he provoked the police and all of these ideas. Um, now, a witness in the hallway who was his neighbor said that they didn't even give him a chance to do anything before they shot him. Yeah. But what I know is wrong about that situation for everything else that happened. The smoking gun for me is that, um, and I'm sorry to use that horrible metaphor because it's not appropriate, but the telltale sign for me of racism in our policing is that the police shot Andrew Loku. There's no disputing that. Yeah. And there's also no disputing the idea that um, for... Because the cameras eventually in that hallway did come on. Yeah. The security surveillance cameras. And those police stood over Andrew Loku's body for at least 11 minutes after they shot him. And at about 11 and a half minutes, the paramedics arrived. And the paramedics were racing up the stairs to try and uh, get to Andrew Loku, who they had heard had been shot. Yeah. It was at that time that the police began to administer CPR. Wow. You tell me why two police officers who are trained in life-saving techniques would stand over a man for 11 minutes at least and then decide after 11 minutes, hey, maybe we should give this guy CPR. It is the exact same thing that we saw in Ottawa this summer with Abdirahman Abdi, 
who was um, a, kill, a man killed by two police officers who brutally beat him in front of his own apartment building. After they beat him and handcuffed him, they simply stood over his body while people screamed at him, he's going to die. Stop. Help him. Why aren't you helping him? All they did was stand over his body because his life had no value for those police officers, just like Andrew Loku's life had no value for the Toronto police officers who killed him. So when people want to argue with me, yeah, that's all I present them with is that there is no humanity in policing in this province because even when you have subdued someone with your gun in the most violent way possible and they are no longer a threat to you, you refuse as a police officer to help them. Yeah. And then the paramedics arrive and the paramedics see a guy lying there in a pool of his own blood handcuffed yeah. while police are standing over not helping him. They don't say anything. Does the hospital that he gets taken to say anything? No. The politicians hear about it and the politicians, well, let's wait till all the facts are out. Maybe they were standing over his lifeless body for a good reason. Yeah. These are the things that we're told as black people to try and swallow and make sense of and be patient about. And I don't have any patience for this. This is hatred and it's wrong. Um, one of what I remember having not this discussion, but similar type of discussion um, with um, uh, Morgan Campbell, who writes for the Toronto Star. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I love speaking with him. He's a great guy. Yeah. Um, you know, we we were we were talking about the Colin Kaepernick issue, and you know, I mentioned you know there, there's you know former black football players that that are against him, and um, so similar to that, I want to ask you this: there there are black police officers. Yep. Uh, the chief of police is black. Yep. Um, to someone like me, ex- explain the disconnect. Well, I would probably start by saying that all black people do not think alike. And do not agree with one another. Fair enough. Uh, and I could, as a Muslim, I understand that. Yes. Yeah. Um, and so I think that that's a very big part of it. But I also think that this whole idea that people kind of, they, they level this charge at us that, well, what about all the black police officers? If a black police officer kills somebody, are you going to call that racist? Yes. I, I am if they're killing black people because you see, it seems like, you know, I, the police are so – they lack so much creativity. They, they took a slogan called Black Lives Matter and then they tried to say Blue Lives Matter. Yeah. They're so weak that they can't even think up their own shit. <laughs> but like when they say Blue Lives Matter, what they're telling you is that police officers don't have a race. All police officers have is a loyalty to the code of policing. Yeah. And I agree with them on that. Sure. They are more loyal to their code as police officers, to their brotherhood with yeah. each other, than yeah. they are to the public. Yeah. And so it doesn't matter what color a police officer is. It doesn't matter what values a police officer brings into that work. If he defies the code of policing, if he decides to report misconduct that he sees around him, yeah. if he hears racist statements, which we hear the police making all the time, and he says something about it, well, he's not going to be a police for very long because all of his boys are going to abandon him. Yeah. And so huh. I think it's really important for people to understand. And, and Mark Saunders, everybody wants to bring up Mark Saunders as, oh, but the police chief is black. The police chief is black. Yes, the police chief is black. The police chief, though, is the head of a corporation that profiles and harasses black people for a living. He knew that when he... Uh, applied for the job of police chief. Yeah, He didn't say, you know, I'm applying because there's systemic racism and as a black guy, I need to change that. He has no interest in changing the system. So it doesn't matter that he's black. He doesn't have the values that I think are necessary to end the racism that's endemic within policing that we're talking about and nor should we really expect one guy at the head of policing to do because it'll also be very easy to blame this black guy for whatever failures the police have on their hands. Yeah. And that's not appropriate either because the system is so much bigger than Mark Saunders and we have to think about the people that he is serving, the interests that he is serving by keeping this agenda alive because it's not about him. Uh, uh, again, I would suggest to you that a police chief, especially a black one, yeah. who started speaking out about all these issues, he would get the door so quick because yeah. the union or should I call them the association, the police association, um, that would organize against him and say, hey, this guy's not one of us. Let's yeah. get him out. Let's find somebody new. 
So there are no alternatives if you're police. You tell the line or you don't do the job. Yeah. Interesting. There's, there's so many places I want to go, but you, you wrote, and, I, and I've, I thought this was a fascinating um, quote. You, you wrote, and this was about the, the Hamilton counselor, I believe. Matthew Green. Yeah. Um, this is what you wrote. Um, I understand if stories like Counselor Green's shock people, but they should not surprise anyone. In fact, people seem to be so surprised by arbitrary police scrutiny of black people that there is no room to be shocked, to be outraged and indignant. The public is afraid to draw any conclusions from the serial criminalization of black bodies. Stories that do make the news are debated and fade away only to be forgotten when the pattern repeats itself. There's a lot in that. Unpack that a little bit for me. Or I guess for people that don't know. Well, okay, so quickly, Matthew Green is a black city councillor in Hamilton. He's actually the first black person in the history of Hamilton City Council. Yeah. He was waiting for the bus one day and he was subject to this practice that we call carding, which is um, the arbitrary stopping and documenting of people who are not committing any crime. Yeah. Carding happens to people of all races, but in every major city in Canada for which we have statistics, <laughs> carding happens disproportionately to racialized and indigenous people. So I'm talking about Hamilton, Ottawa, Peel region, Toronto, wherever you go around the province, Durham region, it happens that police disproportionately target racialized and indigenous people who are not committing any crime and say, who are you? Where are you going? Hey, can I see your ID? I need your name. I need your uh, address. I need your blah, 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 blah. This is how we get treated. So this happened to Councillor Green. Unfortunately for the police officer... He didn't know who he was talking to when he started interrogating this black man standing waiting for the bus. Yeah. And as soon as he found out that he was speaking to a city councillor, his entire tone changed. And he started asking the councillor, uh, are, are you okay? <laughs> as if that was his concern the whole time was yeah. for the safety of this black person who he had just been interrogating and holding up. Um. So that's what happened to Councillor Green, and he's filed a complaint, and he's trying to deal with that matter internally and to say this does happen. No matter your social status, no matter your neighborhood that you live in, if you're black, chances are this is going to happen to you in your life. Um, when I talk about how these things kind of uh, – people fail to have any outrage at them, yeah, it's because what we do in Canada – is every time one of these stories actually makes the news. Now, it happens every day. It happens hundreds of times in this province every single day, but it rarely makes the news. Just like the Black Lives Matter protest that yeah. I call historic, our media are not interested in documenting the way that black people are uh, mistreated by our police, yeah. some of the most powerful people in our society. There's just no interest. And so what happens is when a story does make the news, there's this fake reaction of surprise. Where be, oh, my God. Oh, I can't. I, and, and he's a city councillor, too. I can't believe it. Well, why would you not believe it? If we're walking and we have our pants low, you're going to tell us that you thought we were a gang member. Yeah. But if we're driving in the Beamer, you're going to tell us that you think that we're a drug dealer and that we stole it. I know a woman who drives a Lexus and gets stopped regularly in the city of Toronto. And every time that she gets stopped, this woman, this woman is at least in her 50s. Yeah. Every time that she gets stopped. The cops come to her window and the first question they ask her is, whose car is this? Yeah. Not you were speeding. Not you went through that red light. No. Whose car is this to a black woman? Yeah. So we can't win. There, it's not like there's some circumstance that explains why this happens. But if we were to actually accept that, then we would have to get a little closer to accepting what I said before about white supremacy. And that makes people feel so bad that they can't do it. So what they have to do instead is they have to tell themselves, this is weird. This is out of the ordinary. They have to do that denial thing that we do so well in Canada where we say, this doesn't represent us. This doesn't represent our values. It's always, it's always an accident, right? But we know that it's not an accident. We actually know that the system is built this way. And so we spend so much time trivializing it, trying to ask 100 questions, saying, well, was, was there a video? Oh, I'd like to see the video. It's, yeah. It sounds kind of weird, but I'd like to know more. Yeah. And, and that's where all the energy gets spent, and then it just goes away. 
it's never just like how I react, which is like outrage and how do we dismantle this racist system? Yeah. It's always giving the system the benefit of the doubt for long enough that the story goes away. And that's what we do in Canada so that we don't have to deal with all of this pain. You see, this is the thing is that talking about racism means uh, engaging with a lot of pain. We as black people do not have a choice. We have to engage with this pain because it's our lives and it's our experiences. But the rest of society often does not want to engage with that pain. They see it, but they, they, they get so uncomfortable that they try to find ways to um, um, buffer themselves from it, to insulate themselves from it for long enough that it, the media goes away. And then the next time it happens, we'll be back. So, oh, my God, it happened to Desmond Cole? <laughs> I mean, I mean, the story I'm telling you about what happened on Spadina Avenue, yeah. people are saying to me, don't the cops know who you are by now? But even if they did, they wouldn't care. I'm just another <laughs> black man being a pain in the ass. That's all it is to these folks. They don't care who I am. I was actually, as I was watching that video, I go, when is, when is he going to say, you know, I, I write for the star or, or I'm on CFRB? I don't want to give them the satisfaction because, you see, it shouldn't matter who I am. No, it shouldn't. And I said to the police officers twice in that video when they said, who are you? I said, I'm your boss. Yeah, yeah. And people really reacted uh, negatively to that in social media and stuff, telling me I was being rude, telling me I was being arrogant. Again, no infraction is worse than searching a guy who called you for help. And that's where the focus should be. Yeah. But if we really want to talk about it, I am the police's boss because I'm a taxpayer, as the conservatives like to call it. Yes. And 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 huh. the only reason they exist is to ensure the safety of people like me in the public. So, I shouldn't have to have status in order for them to listen to me and that's exactly what's wrong with policing. Another another uh, kind of iteration of that, people will say, "Well, Desmond, you should do a ride along with the police." Then you may understand uh, what they go through. You you should become a police officer and then and then you can go and make change from the inside. Yeah, I shouldn't have to. I shouldn't have to. No. I shouldn't have to go and join the brotherhood in order to be able to say, as the person that you serve, I demand better. They should listen to that. They should be hearing that. When I call police communications to tell them what I saw, they should be concerned. They should be doing their own investigation. Instead, it's just defensiveness, and we go on to the next one. Yeah, it, should, it, shouldn't be, it shouldn't be up to people like you to, to change how others react to you no it's too much goddamn work but you know it is my work because no one else seems to be interested and when i say no one else i don't mean absolutely no one else but maybe in the field of journalism anyway there are a precious few of us yeah. who are really willing to do this work and that's why i honor our community so much that's why i honor people in the black community who are doing work around um, the child welfare system. So here's a statistic for you. Uh -huh. Only 8% of the children in Toronto are black. 42% of the children who get apprehended by the state in Toronto are black. 42%. So almost half of the children in Toronto who get taken away from their parents are black. Now, what did I say to you before? I said that whenever we raise problems about our community, people say, well, but what are you doing? You must be doing something. So that's what people hear. They hear 42% and say, oh, there must be all these problems in the black community. Not there must be a racist state that, by the way, also took indigenous children away from their families yeah. for generations and generations. Oh, no. No, it must be something that our communities are doing, right? And so this is the spiral and the circle that we, uh, that we keep going down. And um, I honor people who are willing to do the work to expose that kind of racism, to expose racism in the education system where a black kid in elementary school is three times more likely than a white kid to get suspended. I honor people because no one wants in the mainstream to hear these things, but they are our lives and we must talk about them. That's a, that's, I, I don't know how to, how to, how to answer that or, 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 or to continue from that, but there, there's a, there's tons of stuff. Uh, that that I that I want to want to talk to you as about. long as you're feeling me, man. That's yeah. what matters. No, you know? listen. The the reason that I wanted you on is is I I wanted to for me I want to learn the reason the the general reason why I sit down with people, um, you know, once a week if if I can, is is really, you know, one because 
as, as a kid, I always wanted to be like a, 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 a radio DJ. Yeah. You know, and so this is this is my childhood coming back. But number two, I, I want to learn and I want to understand. And I know that, you know, when, when stuff like what you go through happens, it shocks me because I don't live the way that the way that you live or, or you know I don't experience those things I can only remember once in my life being in in junior high someone calling me a Paki and you know with all seriousness on my face saying but I've, I've, I've never been to Pakistan before um, not understanding that he wasn't saying where I was from but right. he was using it in a derogatory manner right um, so I've never experienced this before and so this is me being able to learn and, yeah and so it, i appreciate the time i appreciate you and I, I if i could just comment really quickly on your story one of our big problems in this country is i mean the story you just told is absolutely racism is overt right there's yeah. no there's no denying it our problem is though that that's the only thing that we think is racism is when somebody comes up in your face and, and loud enough that everybody can hear they say something that is um, um, offensive and uh, derogatory and pejorative. They call you a name, right? They say something about your food or your clothes. Yeah. We think that that's the only thing that racism is. If, if all racism was was people coming up and saying mean things to us, it wouldn't really be a big deal, though, would it? The real problem with racism is that it affects things like how the police work, how the child welfare system works, yeah. how the education system works, who gets a job in this country. Yeah. That's the real problem with racism is the institutional and systemic forms of it, not not the interpersonal stuff. We yeah. boil everything down to interpersonal racism. And I tell you, man, I can handle somebody calling me, you know, a name yeah. because when I was a little kid, I got called names in the schoolyard, too. And I'd go home crying to my mom and um, I'd say, well, mom, they told me I was stupid today. And my mom would look at me and she would say, are you? And I'd say, no. My mom really helped me to be strong and to be resilient, and she loved me. Yeah. When I came home and I cried, my mom would hug me and tell me that it's going to be okay. you know. And so I'm grateful for that. That's not the kind of racism, though, that I'm devoting my life to attacking. It's the, it's the bigger stuff. It's the institutional stuff. Um, in a few minutes, I prom- like, like I promised you on Twitter, we will watch the baseball game. I'm all good. I'm all good. <laughs> but... Yeah, related to sports. All right. Yes. Um, yes. <laughs> we we love our sports. Don't I, we? I do. I do. Um, People th- don't know that about me. There's 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 so many things. Um, Morgan Campbell pointed out on Twitter an, an article that was on ESPN, um, and it was why people hate Jose Bautista. Mm. Um, and. After reading it, I go, oh, it's not why people hate Jose Bautista that's the issue. It's Jose Bautista's color is an issue that they just don't realize. And that's the main reason, you know. Um, His bat flip. Oh, yes. I understand it. Like, I understand it because, heck, when you hit, when you do something like that, of course you celebrate I love it when I'm not a huge hockey fan, but I love it when whoever scores an amazing goal celebrates. Mm-hmm. I do not understand when people say you should you should not celebrate a goal. You should not celebrate getting a a wild card berth. You should not celebrate hitting a home run. You should not do this. You should not do that. And more than more often than not, if not 100% of the time, it is People directing those opinions on people that are what I call other. Yeah, they are they are not like in air quotes the majority. They they are others. Well, let's talk about the sports that we're talking about here, yeah. right? Because hockey and baseball are very decidedly of the professional sports that are popular. These are the white man sports. Yeah, are hockey and baseball, and so it doesn't surprise me that these are the. Um, the areas where these conversations come up the most. But let me go back because I, I, I'm a junkie for sports. Um, I loved Stevie Y as a kid, Steve Eiserman. Yeah. Okay. And when Steve Eiserman scored, he would just kind of throw the one hand up in the air for a second and skate over and pat all his teammates on the head and go yeah. back to center ice. He never, ever celebrated. Yeah. And I loved that. Sure. 
Alex Ovechkin came into the league, uh, and when Alex Ovechkin scores a goal, the whole world has to know because he freaks out. Yeah, I love that too. Yeah. I think it's great. Jose Bautista's bat flip. You have to remember that came. It it was the longest inning I've ever watched in my life. It was yeah. like an hour-long seventh inning. The emotion was so high. The tension had been building. It's a one-run game. It, it, oh, sorry. It was a tie it game, a tie actually. Game. By the time that... Yeah, yeah, it was a tie game. And, and, and any other team in the league that had had that player on their team do that in that moment yeah. would never have cared if he flipped the bat and would have loved the guy for it as much as we love Jose Bautista for doing it. Yeah. That's number one. This is this is just partisanship. It's very simple. It's just sports and it's just tribalism. We want our team to you know to represent and we hate all the other teams. Um, so I mean that's a part of it too is that you know he 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 whipped their ass. Nobody yeah. somebody somebody said to me today no one likes getting dunked on and I and I think that, that pretty much that pretty much sums that part of it up. But I don't know if you remember this. Uh, Goose Gossage, yes, his actual name, yeah, uh, uh, former pitcher, white dude. He um, was talking about baseball earlier this year. And he commented on Bautista's bat flip. Yeah. And what did he say? He said that Bautista was a disgrace to all Latin players. That was the comment. Yeah. He was a disgrace to Latin. Not he was a disgrace to baseball. Not he was a disgrace to his team or to the American League. Nah, he was a disgrace to all Latin players. So why is it that that was what was on Goose Gossage's mind? Why, when he saw what Bautista did, yeah. did he immediately think about where in the world Jose Bautista is from? That is, I think, referring back to this article that you're talking about, is that there is always this kind of resentment of non-white players in the the uh, major leagues of baseball that's kind of just lurking just beneath the surface. Yeah. And then when something like that happens, it comes out. Yeah. So um, Adam Jones, who's a center fielder for the Baltimore Orioles, he commented on this recently and he talked about the lack of protest in baseball for Black Lives Matter when other leagues, that's all their right. players are doing this. And all Adam Jones said was it's simple. Baseball is a white man's sport and we can be replaced. This sport doesn't need us. Yeah. The fans are not coming out here to watch a black player. And so if we mess up, if we say something that people don't like, if we're controversial out here, they're just going to get rid of us and no one will care. They'll still come to the stadium. Yeah. And I think he's absolutely right. I think race is always a part of sport and that's because it's a part of our society. Yeah. Your, your thoughts then on, on Colin Kaepernick? <sighs> I mean... <laughs> It's funny how Colin Kaepernick decided to do what he did yeah. at the time that he decided to do it because there have been a really high number of killings of Americans by police this year, particularly black people. Yeah. And right after Colin Kaepernick decided that he was going to stand or kneel in this case and protest, yeah. uh, there was a string of very highly publicized killings yeah. of black people, inclu including Terrence Crutcher uh, and others. Um and so I really think that it's become hard for people who criticized him because the evidence for what he is complaining about and what he's protesting against and fighting for justice for is just so obvious yeah. that the longer that he does this, the harder that it is. And the other thing that it's hard for people to do is it's what I talked about earlier. As soon as he did it, what was it about? Was it about police brutality and whether, oh, I don't believe that Colin Kaepernick's right about the stats? I don't believe that Colin Kaepernick is right about systemic abuse of black people? Oh, no. They changed the debate. No, it, it yeah. was about him being disrespectful. It was about whether or not the military was being insulted by what he did. It was about his behavior and the propriety of his actions as a black man yeah because that's all america and north america ever wants to talk about we want to talk about whether or not black people are being sufficiently meek and proper and docile and yes massa yeah. to have a voice and to have an opinion and it's very easy to decide that we're not doing that because everything we do, including taking a knee in silent protest, is viewed as some kind of of antagonistic militaristic violence. And the same people that said that months earlier were honoring Muhammad Ali. Well, this is the, hypo the hypocrisy of the United States of America. And don't worry, they're going to be doing it to Colin Kaepernick 
60 years ago when he or 60 years from now when he's gone too yeah because as soon as our heroes are dead then they're no longer a threat to the dominant society and so they become heroes and this is how all the racists quote martin luther king jr back to you today yeah i saw a wonderful study today a friend sent this to me they did a survey in 1966 of white americans and they asked white americans a very simple question which is if you, in 1966, white American, were in the position of a black person, would you protest? The majority of people who answered that survey said no. Really? Yes. And I think that this raises a very important point when we look at any protest movement in North America that has to do with black people. Because white people want to think that they were always on the right team. They want to tell you in retrospect that they are the reason that the civil rights movement happened because the white majority suddenly got enlightened oh. and decided that they were going to validate this protest that the black people had started. And even today, we're told that we have to be nice and we have to be polite and we have to uh, foster uh, unity, so-called unity among the white community because if we don't get them on our side, we'll never accomplish anything. Yeah. Dr. King was all about peace they tell us and all about love they tell us well he got a bullet from a white person for all of his peace and love so they say nowadays be like dr king but in that day they spat on dr king they yeah. sent death threats to dr king and today the people are sending death threats to colin kaepernick yes. but 50 years from now don't be surprised if there's a statue to him He'll in san honored. francisco because that's how white supremacy works. It consumes everything like a black hole so that there is nothing left. So that anything that is dissent, anything that is contradiction, just gets swallowed up. White, white supremacy and capitalism go very well together in this way. Is that they find ways to accommodate all the things that are trying to challenge them. And so do not be surprised if people who are criticizing Kaepernick today change their tune later because they want to be part of our success. They want to take credit away from black people and say that they were always about it, always with it, and always supporting it. And in fact, that it was their kind of support that tipped things yeah. uh, finally towards justice. And that's just bogus. They call it, they want to be on the right side of history. They do, but yeah. they don't know how to do it in the present moment. No. Um, a few things I want to chat about. And again, like I said at the beginning, we're going to go all over the place. Um, and I'm, I'm going to be honest with you on, on this one. I won't, I won't hide behind it. Um, when I heard the news that well, something good is happening. Something in the good is happening game. to the Blue Jays. So that, that's good. <laughs> that's a good sign. So I'm, look, I'm looking at my pebble to see if I get a notification of a run, <laughs> of a run scored. But when I heard um, – so over the summer, there was the, uh, the Pride Parade, as there always is in Toronto. Yep. And Black Lives Matter had a protest that stopped the parade. And I'll be honest with you, the first reaction I had was, no, this is going to affect your um, your movement. Um, and it was, I don't know how long, I won't say it was hours, it was probably days after when I sort of read stuff and understood, you know, both the history of the Pride Parade and, and really what they were asking for where I was thinking, no, this is what it's supposed to be about. It's supposed to be the Pride Parade is not about you know TD Bank and 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 this cell phone company and and this corporation draping themselves in a rainbow. It is about protest. Nor is it about the police draping themselves no, in a rainbow nor, because the police no, yeah. the police are the reason why there is a Pride Parade because they enacted brutality against the queer communities of Toronto, including Black queer and trans people. Yeah. Okay. And so. I've already given you the formula twice now. Yeah. So Black Lives Matter disrupts the pride protest and they have nine demands. What did people want to talk about? Did people want to talk about the demands? No. no. They wanted to talk about whether or not black people should have even said anything. They used words like extortion to describe black people sitting down in the street and singing in peaceful protest. That's what people call extortion in the 21st century in Toronto. Why? Because black bodies are involved and they are afraid and feel threatened by those black bodies. So they need to fight back by saying that we're the ones who are being antagonistic and violent. You didn't hear probably, and your listeners probably didn't hear, that people were throwing bottles at the Black Lives no, Matter protesters while they stopped the parade. No, why would you hear it? Why would you hear it? Because that would engender sympathy for them and say that maybe people should have uh, listened and that they went too far in being angry. Yeah. But every time people are angry at black people, 
it's justified. We're always doing something that allows for violence to be enacted against us. And that's the whole thing. It's this cycle where you have people saying we are excluded from the, the, the pride festivities as black people. Our stages don't get funded properly. Our people don't get paid for their work. None of our folks are on the board of directors or in the larger organizing. And we want that to change. And what are they told? They're told that they shouldn't have even talked because it's someone else's parade. That the black people came into someone else's parade and interrupted it. As if black people don't belong at Pride, which is the very thing that they were there to say. That we do belong here. But everybody's reaction, especially white people within the queer community, um, suggested, no, we don't feel like you do belong here. And I'm not trying to say that from my own perspective because I am a cisgendered straight man. So I am not part of the communities that form pride. I am black, but that's where that stops for me. And this is where the idea of intersectionality is so important because of course you can be black and uh, gay. Of course you can be black and trans. Of course you can be black and bisexual. Of course you can be. But what was being said was that even if you are, you need to subvert those other identities and just and just kind of get on board with the happy pride stuff. Yeah. And if the police still treat you bad because you're black and queer, well, that's your own black people problem when you leave the parade. Yeah. That's not to be brought into our happy festival. If you don't want to march next to police, even though they treat us great and treat you horrible, well, take that somewhere else. And they're saying, but if we're part of the community, we don't want to take it somewhere else. This is what this is supposed to be about, as you said. And um, I I was on the radio the day that this happened, live. Okay. So I was seeing the tweets and I was kind of seeing things roll in. And at first it was very confusing to understand what was going on. Yeah. And, and um, there's yeah. A, yeah there's a home run some, there. Something's going on. That was good. If, if you don't on. know, it is... Well, guess who hit a home run? I, I just heard his name. Bautista. Who else? <laughs> I hope he flipped the bat, too. Bitch! <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. I mean... You were on the radio. I was on the radio. Yeah, yeah. We were live. It was hard to understand at first what was really going on. But as I started to understand, I became very, very afraid for the organizers putting themselves like that in harm's way they were truly not safe that day people wanted to hurt them for stopping this parade that in their eyes is not supposed to be about politics anymore yeah it's just supposed to be about some very bland canadian notion of everyone being unified and those who have complaints getting silenced you put your complaints away that was the idea and i felt very scared for them i'm proud of them for standing up i i I feel so consistently proud of the organizers of Black Lives Matter, but also the organizers of things like Black Queer Youth, Blockorama, Blackness Yes. These are the groups that, in collaboration with Black Lives Matter, staged that um, protest, and their names are never called out in the media. I'm so proud of them for standing for what they believe in inside their own communities and, and, and trying to make change that people have been demanding for so long yeah let's wrap this up okay um you have a book coming out next year is that is that still on oh my god please don't ask me about the book have you finished writing that <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna do what jeet here did and you're, i'm, you're I'm ed- just gonna i'm just gonna call me <laughs> i'm just going oh, thank god I, i'm gonna do what jeet here did and i'm just gonna keep tweeting and then turn that into a book it's way easier no offense to my brother jeet here but um um no i i am working on the book okay. <laughs> god willing the book will come out next year yeah I don't have a title for it yet. So it's not the skin I'm in. Well, we're, maybe we could call that the working title, okay. but I, I probably won't do that to myself. Yeah. Uh, I, need to, <laughs> I need to branch out. That was the name of the Toronto Life feature I did last year. Okay. Um, but I'm very excited about this book. Yeah. It's a book about um, a lot of the history of black people in this country. I'm not a historian, so it's not going to be mostly about that. I, I just need to provide that context. Sure. Because like I was telling you before, Um, Black people were enslaved in this country, and no one ever talks about that. Um, 
black people had laws against their immigration to this country. And we, we very rarely talk about that. Black people were not allowed to do a whole bunch of occupations. Black people uh, uh, experienced segregation just as they did in the United States with schools and with washrooms and with the like, restaurants. And, and so this was our history in Canada. And I think that since we started with Black Lives Matter, let me end here. Yes, yes. We can only really understand Black Lives Matter by looking at our own history in Canada not by just assuming that this sprung up because something happened in the United States. We've had our own grievances in our country for the whole time we've been here. We've been resisting as black people the whole time that we've been here. And I love to talk about the contemporary issues, which I will do in the book, but I will frame them in our history as black Canadians rather than trying to look for that somewhere else because our stories in this country are very important. Yeah. Listen, I, I am, I am uh, better off... Uh, for having you come here um, and, and talk to me. Um, I, I hope I understand more. Um, and listen, thank you so much for, for spending time. And I know you're hugely busy. Um, I'm also trying to watch this baseball okay, game, bro. We're, we're going to get to that. Man. <laughs> Thanks so much, Desmond. Thank you. I thank you so it. much, Kareem. I appreciate it.